<clears throat> well, good morning. I'm wondering if uh, anybody Adam and ready to go. Delighted to be here this morning and getting ready to do another sojourner. I've got my cup of coffee. I hope you have yours. And uh, we'll get started as soon as we see somebody out there listening. By the way, this is the uh, eighth and last in our Sojourn series, so I hope it's been a blessing to, uh, to you. Uh, we're ready to rock and roll here, so let's have a word of prayer and, and get started. Father, we thank you for this chance, this opportunity, this, uh, this way with modern technology to get your word out. We ask that you would bless it, that you would be our teacher this morning, and we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Looking uh, at Hebrews chapter 11, and if you remember, that's the chapter that gives us all the details about the, the men and women who live their life by faith. The Bible says that they were aliens, pilgrims, and I like the word sojourners, people who knew they were looking for a country, uh, a country that they would call home that this isn't all there is. And yet they made an unbelievable impact while they were here. So we've been looking at uh, seven, today is the eighth sojourner, men and women uh, in everything from the 14th to the 21st century, impacting people's lives for the cause of Christ. And today um, our sojourner is a particularly significant one that Bible that you have hopefully uh, nearby you right now, this morning would not be there. You would, it would not be in your native language if, uh, if he hadn't done his work. Our sojourner is so important to you and I. If, um, if he had not done his life's calling, that which God asked him to do, when you and I would read, let's say, John 3.16, a passage I know we're all very familiar with, it would sound like this if our sojourner had not done his work. Sic enim delixet Deus mundum un filium sum un agentium daret un omnis qui credit in um non parat seed habitet vitam aterdum. Okay. So that's not how it says in my Bible. So loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. I was, I was quoting in Latin there. Those of you that know me know that there's a funny story about me in Latin. I took four years of Latin in high school so I could get out of home ec. Um, and the fact that I didn't want to have to pronounce it out loud, and I just did. At any rate, uh, the guy we're talking about today is William Tyndale. He was born in a very small village uh, in, uh, in England called Stinchcombe, Stinchcombe. And if you're a fan of the, um, the television series, The Crown, Stinchcombe is over near where Prince Charles has his country estate called Highgrove uh, out in Gloucester. At any way, somewhere between 1491 and 1494, Tyndale was born. It's really hard to get the early details of his life because his family used two particular surnames and they show up in various records. Tyndale being, being, being the other. We don't know much about his family. We know he had two brothers. 
Um, we know that his family owned land and that they were particularly uh, prosperous as uh, wool merchants, which will come into the picture in, in a little bit. Um, we don't know anything about Tyndale marrying. Um, he's going to become a Catholic priest, and so I think that's the reason there's no family for him. Um, but we do know a lot about his education. Like most of the, the well-trained uh, and, and well-founded uh, uh, families, he was sent off to, and ultimately to Cambridge. He received both his bachelor's degree and his master's degree. And as was kind of the way of the, of the day, if you had an education, you often farmed yourself out as a tutor or a teacher for a wealthy family. And after he finished his education, William, that's what he did. He took a position with a, a family as a tutor. He had a lot of time on his hands, and he began to do a very detailed study of the Greek New Testament. Now, the, 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 the whole thing of our story today is about the translation of God's word into the English language. And so we need to pause a moment and, and remember, most of the people at this only access they had to God's word was when a priest would stand up in a in a parish church or even a large cathedral and he would quote from the from the Latin Bible not the language of the people not really understood by the people always interpreted by the priest well along came the time for the Renaissance and ultimately then the Reformation and as part of that process uh, men like Erasmus, uh, who was a Dutch Roman Catholic priest, he, come, he came under the influence of some godly men and realized that the, the New Testament in particular translated into a high-quality Greek. Uh, Greek then would make it accessible to scholars to translate it into other languages. And, and his work on the New Testament, that is Erasmus, was very influential into the Reformation. Uh, Martin Luther owing a great deal to his work. And so Tyndale began to, to study Erasmus's uh, version of the New Testament and, and began to dabble with translating that into the language of the people, into English. Um, he was, during that same period, though, pursuing becoming a Catholic priest, which is what any scholarly young man did during that, that uh, era. He was uh, ordained what they called a, uh, a subdeacon in a little church in Hereford. And then he went from being a subdeacon to the next level, which would be deacon. And finally, he was um, ordained as a, as a Catholic priest. He served for a, a period of time, and we're not sure how long, as a, a parish priest in a small little village. Um, but all of that time, his real focus was on the translation of God's word. The, the, the Catholic Church did not support it. They did not encourage him, want him to do that work. Um, and, and he was having difficulty finding financial backing so he could spend all of his time studying um, Erasmus's Greek and New Testament. Ultimately, he decided to move to London. I think probably it was a practical decision to find some greater financial support. Um, when he got there, uh, it was very difficult for him to find any uh, rich uh, non-Roman Catholic uh, supporters there or benefactors that might uh, help his work. He began arguing both in writing and you know face-to-face -face, 
with a lot of the the uh, Catholic scholars that that were around in in London at that time. Um, the guy John Fox, who wrote Fox's Book of Martyrs, maybe some of you are familiar with that book. He was a historian and a writer that gathered up all of the stories of uh, great Bible teachers down through the ages that suffered. At any rate, his his Book of Martyrs records one of those arguments that Tyndale was having with a, a Catholic scholar. The Catholic scholar said this, we're better, we are definitely better without God's law than without the popes. To which Tyndale replied, I defy the pope and all of his laws. If God spared my life for many more years, I will cause a boy that drives a plow to know more about the scripture than you do. His life work was to translate God's word into the language of the people. Now, it helped that he was an absolute gifted linguist, so much so that he knew eight different languages. And he's only in his 20s at this point. Greek and Latin, German, French, Hebrew, Spanish, Italian, and obviously English. He was wanting to use that skill that he had given him so that the people could understand the scriptures. But the church didn't want it. They knew that would be a challenge to their, to their power. And so they refused to support his efforts. He got nothing but pushback even uh, in, in London. So ultimately he felt like he had to to the continent of Europe, spending much of the next 10 years of his life moving around in Germany and ultimately the Netherlands. At age 32, Tyndale completed the English translation of the Greek New Testament. And this is a very big deal. Now the, the, the printing press, the European printing press, the Chinese had one before, but the Gutenberg press was, was available since um, 1456. So his work could be printed and it was, and it was smuggled out of Europe back into England. Um, they produced uh, and printed 3,000 of the, that first New Testament um, and smuggled it back into England by hiding it in, uh, in bales of, of, uh, of cotton that were in England. See, his family's uh, industry or uh, knowledge of the wool industry really came in handy because that's where they hid the copies of the printed Bible to get it back into England. Of that first 3,000 copies, there are still three uh, available to be looked at, one of which is at the British Library in London, and I've it's pretty cool. But he kept doing his work, and, and a few years later, he published a revised New Testament. And here's the reason why. In the interim, he learned Hebrew, and having learned that language, it served as a a great backdrop to help him understand and sharpen some of the, the nuances of the language of the New Testament. He would refer to this as the glory of his life's work. His aim was to publish a, an entire Bible uh, that was translated into English. And so Tyndale kept going with his translation. Um, not too long later, he, he translated all of the, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Um, then he jumped to Joshua and went from Joshua's clear through the history books to Second Chronicles. For some reason, picked out Jonah, and that's where his translation uh, had, had ended. Um, when, uh, when Tyndale's works were, were, were being uh, shared, you can imagine the criticism that came from the established church. And um, 
the the great uh, in in English history between a, a Catholic ruler and then and then a Protestant ruler and then a king that would lean towards the Roman Catholic Church and then a, a king or queen that leaned towards the Protestant um, uh, emphasis. Well, during that this particular time, uh, Sir Thomas More was the Chancellor of England and he absolutely opposed the the uh, Protestant Reformation with great zeal, often writing against Martin Luther and Zwingli and John Calvin. And you might imagine that he opposed uh, Tyndale as well. It's interesting, though, that after refusing to annul Henry VIII's uh, marriage uh, to Catherine of Aragon, he got convicted of treason and he himself died in the Tower of London. But at this point, there was great opposition to this translation work. Now, maybe we should take a little time out here and talk just for a minute about uh, how did we get an English version that you and I are reading. Uh, my Bible sitting here beside me today is um, a uh, NIV, a New International Version. But I, I came to know the Lord with a, with a King James uh, Bible in my lap. So let, let's talk about how did that happen. Well, it started really with a guy by the name of John Wycliffe. Uh, Wycliffe Bible translators still bear his name. He was an Oxford, an Oxford guy, a professor. And, and he was the first one to produce handwritten copies of, of portions of the Bible for his students. His students became known as the Lawlords, and they produced dozens of these manuscripts that were translating the Latin version uh, into some sort of English. The thing is, Wycliffe was so hated by the church that 44 years after he died, the, the church leaders had his bones dug up they crushed them all and then scattered them in a river, thinking that that would be the end of an English Bible. But one of his followers, a guy by the name of John Huss, he began to promote his work and the, and the effort continued with the Lollards. John Huss himself was burned at the stake. And as kind of a in your face, they lit the fire by using Wycliffe's manuscripts as kindling. Um, a few years later, 1496, John Collette came along. He was another Oxford professor, and he continued to translate the New Testament into English, offering copies to his students. His students let people in the little surrounding village. And at one point, there were over 20,000 people trying to jam in to a, a, a nearby church just to hear God's word spoken in their language. We take it so for granted but it cost a huge price. Um, when Erasmus came along, as I mentioned earlier, now they had a more reliable Greek text and the translation was spurring Tyndale on. In fact, um, it was the source of inspiration for him to become the first man that produced the, a printed New Testament in English. When, when Tyndale was taken off the scene in a moment, his work was carried on by a guy by the name of Miles Coverdale. And Coverdale was a, was a disciple of Tyndale's, and he took the project and kept going with it. By that time, the, the sway had happened in England, and the king was moving towards more of a Protestant mindset. And so he uh, determined, this is still Henry VIII, that Coverdale's Bible uh, would be published and required in every uh, village church throughout England. Uh, all that happened just three years after Tyndale's death. 
when uh, when King Henry uh, got engaged in all of this, uh, the Bible that he had printed, while it was Coverdale's Bible, became known as the Great Bible. The problem was it was printed in such a way that it was over 14 inches high and very cumbersome, so it was hard to use on a, on a personal basis. And then things swayed again. Now, Queen uh, Mary, she took the throne, and, and she's going to swing things the other way. Um, all of the reformers then fled to, to, to Europe again, and they took refuge, a lot of them, in Geneva, Switzerland. Uh, now, Geneva, Switzerland, for those of you that know a little bit about your church history, that's where men like John Calvin and John Knox and others were located. They were so determined to get a Bible into the English language for lots of reasons, including the fact that they wanted their own children to be able to read it. They, uh, they took that great Bible, the Coverdale Bible, did some translation and work on it, actually numbered the verses. It's the first time the verses were numbered within a chapter, and they produced what's known as the Geneva Bible. The Geneva Bible was printed over and over and over again and became a very well-known uh, text. In fact, all of the biblical quotes that Shakespeare does, and he does hundreds of them, they came directly out of the Geneva Bible. You say, well, we're not quite to my Bible. No, we need to go to 1611, and when King James, from which we get the uh, King James Bible, he authorized the translation that, that bears his name. That work, the work that the translators did on the King James Bible, was greatly affected by the Geneva Bible, and so much so that if you took uh, Tyndale's work and laid it side by side with the King James Bible, 90% of the verbiage, 90% of the words that are in there are Tyndale's words, and 50% in the Old Testament. 90% of the New Testament is Tyndale's. When you pick up a, a King James, or for that matter, probably a new King James Version, you're really reading Tyndale's translations. We owe so many phrases. Not only do we owe the Bible itself to his amazing work, but, but Tyndale captured words and phrases that have become part of the English language, expressions that I can't imagine uh, wouldn't be there. Things like, let there be light, or our Father who art in heaven, those were his. Um, the Spirit is indeed willing. Um, one I like a lot, in him we move and live and have our being. And then just the expression, fight the good fight, out of one of the epistles. All of those are, are words, phrases, translations from William Tyndale. Now I mentioned earlier that the Catholic Church hated his work. You might wanna ask the question, well why? Why did, why did they hate him so bad? Well, first off, they thought his translation was crude, um, and, and their expression was that it was unworthy of the, the holy words of God. Um, the, the, the truth is they also believed that the more translations that were done, the more errors that would creep in, because you know, you're translating words and translating words, and there must be some errors. But the real truth was they believed by church tradition and by the distortion of some texts that only priests were given the divine grace to be able to, to, to read and interpret scripture. If everybody could read for themselves, uh, the Catholic Church believed they would too easily The exact opposite is the truth. 
but the the church was fighting it. They realized that if people could read for themselves what God's word actually said, they'd be able to discern which which doctrines are true, which doctrines are not true. Now Tyndale really set this thing aflame by his translation of five key words in the New Testament. Uh, they were five terms that ignited the firestorm and, and really provoked the, the pressure he felt in trying to get the Bible translated into English. Let me, let me give you those words because they, they'll make sense to you. The first one is he translated the, the Latin word presbyteros, presbyteros. He, he translated that um, elder. Until that time, it had been translated priest. Now you can see if it's priest, all the injunctions that are in the New Testament epistles that we translate elder or bishop or pastor or shepherd, uh, all of those are going to be translated priests, who can and cannot uh, teach and preach God's word. Another one, the uh, word ecclesia, um, it, it was translated before that time as the church, capital T-H-E. He translated it just as a congregation. Uh, the actual word just means a called out assembly of people. And he recognized when he translated it into English, he just called it a congregation, not an established religion. Uh, metanoeo, he translated as repent. Previous to that, it had always been translated penance. And for that, you know, people paid money uh, to have their sins forgiven. He, he translated exomologio as just acknowledgement. And previously, it had been translated as a formal kind of confession, which supported the people doing their confessions with a local priest. And lastly, he translated the word agape, not as just charity, but as love. You can see how that would run at cross purposes with the sacramental structure of the, of the Roman Catholic Church. And in addition to that, the later editions of his Bible also carried notes with them. You know, like we have study Bibles now. Well, they had a, a study Bible version of some of Tyndale's work. And in those notes, they would affirm things like salvation by faith in Jesus Christ alone, no works, or denouncing the prayers to the saints, or emphasizing the importance of God's word in the hand of every single believer. You, you can um, understand why the, the church would oppose his work. Now, some believe that Tyndale uh, was influenced by Martin Luther and actually spent time in Wittenberg with him. Um, and others of renown were, were guys who were supporting his work in, in England, but they did so at great cost. A number of his friends were just burned at the stake simply because they read his translations. Um, some were, were held accountable for smuggling the books back into England. One guy by the name of John Tewksbury, he became a believer after reading one of Tyndale's parables, not even his translations, but the parable of Wiccan Mamma, Ma uh, Manon rather. The idea was that it was a justification, a defense of uh, justification by faith. This guy Tewksbury got saved and simply because he got saved, um, Thomas More uh, had him tortured and ultimately burned alive. Uh, John Bainham one time uh, stood up in the middle of a mass and held up a, a copy of, of, uh, of the uh, translation, a copy of the 
New Testament that Tyndale had been working on, and he was pleading with the people to turn their their lives uh, to Christ, and he was captured, uh, tortured, and burned alive. During the, the last uh, 10 years of his life, I think I mentioned that he was wandering around in Europe. Uh, the last few months, he was having a difficulty finding a place to stay. He was always at the mercy of a, a financial benefactor that would allow him to stay in his home. Um, there were some reports, though, of what he was doing during that time, in addition to his his translation work. I found it interesting the way he uh, exercised uh, his regular old run-of-the-mill responsibilities. He, on Mondays, it said that he visited uh, other religious refugees in, in the area. Uh, on, on Saturdays, he was ministering to the poor in a very practical way, and on Sundays, he would sit around in merchants' home and read the scriptures to them hour by hour. All the other time, of course, he was working on his translation and some of his other writings. One of his benefactors, in fact, the last one, it was a guy by the name of Henry Phillips. And Phillips was persuaded, uh, I think it was because of money, but he was persuaded to trap uh, Tyndale into coming out of, of his home and, and being available to be arrested. And that's what happened. He lured him out. Uh, out of the safe house and, and had him captured. He was uh, taken away to Vilverdi Castle outside of what is common uh, or what is uh, today Brussels um, and stuck in Vilverdi Castle for, for the next 18 months of his life. They, uh, they charged him with heresy and they selected a, a, a group of special commissioners to try his case, but he refused, of course, to recant his biblical positions, and they found him guilty. Um, one writer observing what his life was like during these times of torture leading up to his death wrote this, you could speak much of the patient suffrage of Tyndale at the time of his execution. He suffered graciously during those months. By the, the time of the autumn of 1536, they strangled him and then burned him. Um, it's said that during his execution, he called out uh, in a prayerful way, Lord, open the King of England's eyes, which they took to mean allow uh, the King to understand the need for the Bible to be written in their own language. So what do we learn, guys? What do we learn from William Tyndale? What what can we get out of his life? Well, I think we can get lots of stuff. We could certainly get perseverance towards a goal, uh, courage in the face of great opposition. We could learn um, something about the value of, of scholarly pursuits, the people that'll, that'll spend their lives studying so we have something important. We could learn about that. We could learn about... Um, submitting ourselves to a cause that's bigger than us, something other than the petty pursuits that you and I spend our lives doing. But mostly, I think, and this is the one I would like to draw to your attention today, is that I think we got to take a minute or two and just consider how important God's Word is. How important we have in our hands Word in a language that we can readily understand. I want you to just take a moment sometime today, sit down somewhere and consider what your life would be like without God's word.
Think about that. No salvation, no, no pursuit of sanctification, no opportunity to understand God's goodness or his mercy or his justice, no way to ferret through and try to understand things like creation or, or what's coming. Is there, is there a heaven? Get the information we need on how the church is supposed to operate with no roadmap for guidance, no, no check for our attitudes, no, no revelations as to what's coming, no encouragement for our souls, no knowledge of what is holy and right. All of that would be lost if you and I didn't have a Bible in our own language. I think we need to take some time to the written word in much the same way we cherish the word, Christ himself. Now, how do we do that? I want to give you two ways. First one, we need to read and re-read his Bible, his words. The other day, someone I know uh, personally remarked about the Bible, and they said they knew it because they read it all the way through. And I kind of smiled. Okay, you've read through the Bible, 66 books, once. 1,102 verses in our English Bible. And, and you read it once, and you know it all? You and I need to read and reread and reread again and commit ourselves to reading the Bible through at the very least once a year. Do you know that you could read the Bible out loud, the pace at which I'm speaking right now, in just 70 hours and 40 minutes? That's not that long a period of time. Or, or thinking about it another way, you could read silently through the scriptures in one year by just reading, wait for it, 12 minutes a day. That's three chapters. 12 minutes a day, and you'll be finished reading God's word once a year. We need to read God's word for, for, for a practical purpose. You know, uh, like you might read a, a set of battle plans. I always love those World War II movies, the submarine movies, when the scene comes and the guy comes in and says, it's time to open our orders. Well, we have orders, orders that have been sent from a commanding general. They have specific instructions. They, they have locations where we're supposed to rendezvous with him. There's opportunities for resupplying, uh, code words for communication. We have a spiritual leader and we need to hear from him. Read and reread his words. But there's another way we might read them. We might read them like we read, would read a uh, letter from a loved one. You know, when we have those kind of letters, we, ch we cherish the sentiments that are all expressed. We, we relive the moments uh, that happened that we shared together. We treasure those, those memories that pop up as we're reading and rereading those letters. Yeah, God is our master, our commander-in-chief, but he's also the love of our lives. We need, to, we need to make sure that we hear from him during the tough times of our life because that's where we're going to get comfort and direction. But we also need to share all those victories. God loves hearing from his kids when things are going well. When you and I prayerfully read and reread God's word, we're cherishing a fellowship that we have that's rooted in the stories, the narratives, the instructions, the literature, all of which is found in our Bible. 
Tyndale gave his life, as did many others. So you and I have the opportunity to read and reread God's word. I think there is a, a second thing that we ought to do as we think about a Tyndale's life. I don't think it's enough just to read the words. I think we need to move them into our hearts. I know, as soon as I start discussing memorizing God's word, lots of people start to turn, turn away and, uh, and, and go away. But let me just say this. Memorization matters. It really does. There are people uh, that memorize vast amounts of scripts for their professional life. There are others that, that memorize uh, lyrics to, to songs by the thousands. The very least you and I could do is put some time and effort in God's word. Um, did you know that a boy born into a Pharisee family, and this would have been a family that was committed to God's word, um, if he was two years old, the first thing they would do is take a scroll of God's word and they put some honey on the outside of that, that uh, holder of the scroll and they would invite the little two-year-old to lick it. First chance he ever had anything sweet. They wanted to make sure that his first memory of something sweet was, was expressed out of Psalm 119.103, where it says, How sweet are your words to my taste. Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. They wanted to introduce him to the memorization and the value of memorizing God's word. When that little two-year-old would return or would turn four, then he would be encouraged and, and taught to memorize the entire book of Leviticus. Leviticus. By the time he was 12 years old, he would have memorized everything between Genesis and Deuteronomy. And as a teenager, he'd finish off the prophets and the Psalms. And you and I have trouble memorizing a verse. Memorizing God's word is an important part of our work, and it's an important part of our walk. It cannot be uh, ignored or neglected. Tyndale gave his life making certain that you and I could pick up a book and read God's life-saving words in a language that makes sense to us. So this week, let's, let's make a fresh start, you and I, with both the prayerful reading of God's word and the memorizing of it. Bear in mind the words out of Colossians chapter 3, verse number 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your heart. And let's do this. Let's thank, let's thank Tyndale for letting us have a book in a language that makes sense to all of us. Well, thanks for coming. It would have been no fun without you. I have uh, enjoyed this series. I wanted to give credit before I'm turning off the video today to uh, John Piper, a writer who's written a, a, a series of stories about uh, sojourners. And uh, his books um, are in what's called the, um, the Swans Are Not Silent series. He has a, a big book out with uh, all of them in there. He calls it 21 Servants of the sovereign uh, joy. But John Piper uh, provided much of the, the material for this study and I wanted to give him credit. Um, this is the end of this particular series. Uh, we won't be meeting next Tuesday this way. I'll keep you posted on what's next.
great day.